Right, church, good morning. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2? We will be reading from verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was up from the land and was, wa- and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Fishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So concludes the reading of God's word. Amen. Amen. How many of, how many of you have seen these t-shirts that say life is good? You all know what I'm talking about? No? Okay, well, I'll describe in case you, you haven't seen one. Um, by the way, life was real good a couple Sundays ago when my Eagles won the Super Bowl. <laughs> I've been waiting to say that. But the, these shirts say life is good. And, and typically you'll see the, the, that phrase on the front or on a pocket or something. And then on the back there will be this, this cartoon-esque picture of an activity that the, theoretically the person wearing the shirt enjoys. So it could be a girl running it could be a guy fishing, a dad lounging in an armchair, a family camping. Uh, you get the idea. My, my personal favorite is, well, I'm waiting for my one that says we won. Uh, my personal current favorite is the one that has a guy with a backpack bounding up the side of a mountain. Life is good. Go backpacking. I, I have to say, in, in mentioning those shirts, I have no issue with them. I'm not going to set them up and then slam them in some way. In their proper place and time, running and fishing and relaxing in armchairs and bounding up the sides of mountains are all what? Good things. Do you all agree with that? Yes, they're very good things in their proper place and time. But I think, church, the underlying message is worth pondering. So think about this, Okay. Take, take the running shirt, for example. Life is good, go running. Think about this. Am I saying that life is only good because I get to run? 
or as long as I get to run, life is good? Is running what makes life good? If that's true, then what about the day my knees give out? Or I'm no longer able to run, or fill in the blank with whatever activity you would put on the back of your shirt. In that moment, will life suddenly cease to be good? I think if we're honest, probably every one of us, we may, not, we may be very grateful right now all our thoughts going through our mind are not put up on a screen for the whole world to see, but, but if they were, I wonder how many of us would be thinking right now, oh, oh, I know what the good life looks like and feels like. I know what the good life is. I know what it is. And I'm spending a considerable amount of time and money trying to get there. I think most people, Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter if you ask them, have some internal concept of where can I find the good life? So examples, some people decide the good life is found in traveling the world. So these are the people that when you talk to them, they're always talking about the last trip they went on and how they can't wait to go on the next trip that they're planning. Uh, Some people decide that the good life is found in sexual pleasure. So they're always looking for a new experience or, or conquest to, to satisfy their sexual desires. Some, some people decide the good life is found in being liked by other people. So these are the folks that, that can't get off social media. And, and their, their smartphone is almost like an emotional support animal of some sort. We have some concept, most of us, of what the good life consists of and we're running toward it, whether we realize it or not. What we need to see about Genesis 2 is that this was written to a group of people who were wrestling with those issues too. Because Genesis was originally written to a group of people who no doubt were asking this question, where is the good life to be found? Why do I say that? Because we know from biblical history that this book of Genesis was written most likely by Moses sometime between when the people of Israel left Egypt and slavery in Egypt and entered the promised land, the land of Canaan. And I think it goes without saying that if you spent the last 400 years or so in slavery, you've had a lot of time to think about what the good life would be like. A lot of time to long for the good life and and to form some pretty strong opinions about what this good life will feel like and, and look like. So much of the material Moses includes in this book, especially chapter two, is getting at this question for Israel. Where will you find the good life? What's it look like? What's it feel like? And and chapter two is no exception to this because in this chapter, church, we're we're given a picture, a glimpse of paradise. It's a snapshot, like a still frame of, of what life as it was meant to be looks like. And it gives us a definitive and crystal clear answer to the question, where is the good life to be found? Where is the good life to be found? Given we're all longing for the good life, though we all probably bring in various definitions of what that means, we need to hear how God answers that question in Genesis 2. And he simply says this. 
The good life consists of one thing and one thing only. It is found in covenant relationship with God. That's the answer. I could sit down right now. (laughs) But I'm not. Because that statement creates a collision. It's like two trains crashing into each other. What's the collision? The collision is between my default definition of what the good life is and God's definition. And that point of collision means we need to linger here and think about why does God say that the good life consists of a covenant relationship with him? So let's think about this. Why why do I say that? I say that more than any other reason because that's what God says over and over and over again in this chapter. So look at the end of verse four. Look at the end of verse four. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That should sound a lot like Genesis 1-1 to you. Give you a gold star if you thought of that. (laughs) And there's a reason for that. It's the author's way of telling us that the creation account in Genesis 2 is part of the same creation account in Genesis 1. And we'll see this phrase, these are the generations, over and over again in Genesis. It's it's what breaks the book up. And it essentially means, as I said a few weeks ago, this is what became of something. So when you say these are the generations of something, you're saying this is what became of it. This is what was begat from it. In this case, this is what became of the heavens and the earth. So God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, and he tells us what becomes of them in Genesis 2. But interestingly enough, Genesis 2 doesn't focus on the sun or the fish of the sea or the birds of the air or the moon or the stars. The entire chapter focuses on man. Why is that? Why is it when God says this is what became of the heavens and the earth, all creation, we suddenly zoom in on our story. Well, the reason, friend, is that God created us in his image to rule the world on his behalf. And thus, as goes man, so goes the entire created order. In other words, the the destiny of the entire created order is bound up in the destiny of man because he created us to rule it and subdue it, and fill it. And as his representatives, he enabled the first man, and enables us, to enjoy something that is not shared by anything else in all creation. He he created us to enjoy the gift of relationship with him. It sets us apart. You may know that names are very significant in the Old Testament and none more so than the name of God himself. So look back at verse four that I just read at the very end of the verse. Do you see the word Lord capitalized in your Bible? Okay, just out of curiosity, how many of you have a Bible that has the word Lord capitalized? Okay, so know what I'm working with. Good, good. Well, there's a reason for that. The editors just didn't get crafty or bored. (laughs) That's because in verse four, God isn't just referred to with the generic Hebrew word Elohim. It's not merely Elohim who made the heavens and the earth. 
It's Yahweh Elohim, or the Lord God who made the earth and the heavens. Yahweh is God's covenant name. It's his personal name, okay? It's not a generic name, it's personal. It's the name scripture uses over and over again. Yahweh in describing God in relationship with his people. And this is the first time it shows up in the Bible. Yahweh. And it shows up over and over again in Genesis 2 and then takes a surprising or not so surprising break in Genesis 3. Here's what Moses is doing. He's reminding Israel, guys, listen. This isn't just what I'm giving you. This isn't just the history of the world, okay? This is personal. A, a generic God did not create the heavens and the earth. You know who created the heavens and the earth? Our God did, Israel. Yahweh did. Your God did. My God did. And the good life is only found in covenant relationship with him. That's what Moses is getting at. Where, where relationship with God is present, the good life is present. It was true for Adam. It was true for Israel. Friends, it's true for us today. What does John 10.10 10 say? Jesus' words, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. And have it meagerly, Have it abundantly. Abundantly. And so this portrait of paradise, Genesis 2, 4 through 17, this, this helps us understand, friends, the kind of life that is good. What's the good life look like? What's the good life feel like? What, what characterizes the good life? How do I know the good life when I'm seeing it? That's what this does for us. And it's marked by the presence of three gifts, at least three, because that's about all the time I'm going to have. Here's the first one. What, what marks and characterizes the good life? Gift number one, the gift of God's life. The gift of God's life. If, if the good life is found in covenant relationship with God, the first gift that characterizes that relationship is the gift of God's life. So, so back on the third day of creation, Genesis 1, what did God create? Vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees. But Genesis 2, 4, and 5 tell us that, that the arable fields, they had yet to produce crops or small plants. There was no agricultural enterprise because Yahweh had yet to send the rain, and more importantly, he had yet to create man to work the fields, to cultivate the fields. So, so Genesis 2, 7 picks up, if you look there, right in the middle of the sixth day in Genesis 1. And so we read, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So in Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man. In 127, so God created man, and now we're finally given a little bit more detail about what God making man and creating man required. A little more detail. So note first, looking at verse 7, note the dignity of man. The dignity of man. God didn't adapt Adam or modify Adam or, 
or claim a pre-existing Adam or take a 1.0 Adam and make him 2.0 Adam. He formed Adam. Personally and and intentionally, Yahweh formed him. The, The image here, this forming, the image is of a potter working on his wheel. It's the same Hebrew word. God's crafting the man. He's he's shaping the man. He's molding him exactly in keeping with his vision and plans for the man. There's nothing haphazard here. God didn't turn around and check that out. A man evolved. No. He formed him. He formed him. There's dignity in that. But, But lest we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, the Lord tells us what? That he formed Adam, and by extension all who come from him, from what? From the dust of the ground. Congratulations. I mean, honestly, the the relationship between Adam and the ground is even more explicit in Hebrew. Literally, verse 7 reads, and the Lord God formed Adam from Adamah. He formed Adam from the ground. Sounds almost identical. In other words, he didn't create Adam out of gold, precious stones. He he created Adam and and all who would come from him from dust. So you have dignity, you have humility, side by side. And then God does something remarkable. He, He breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. Adam didn't derive his life from another creature. He derived his life from none other than God himself. So it was the life of God that animated Adam. It was the life of God that that filled Adam. It wasn't Adam's by right. It was a gracious gift from God. And note, friend, it was completely unearned and undeserved. He hadn't even lived yet. So it was the overflow of of the generosity of the creator. And by the way, the exact same thing is true of your life today. Your life is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. It's it's the overflow of his generosity towards you. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Why? Since he himself gives to all mankind, life and breath and everything. Friend, your life didn't find its origin ultimately in your parents getting busy. Your life found its origin in the breath of God. The breath of God. That means your life is a gift. It's not yours by right. It's, it's his. Check that out. And he's entrusted it to you. He's given it to you. And that's true for all of us. But in applying this point, I I think it's especially relevant for those of us who who today, if you're honest, very much feel the effects of old age. Okay? Hard things happen when we age. Our, Our minds start to weaken. Our bodies start to decay, disease sets in, and and everything that we knew would happen at some point just starts happening way faster than we ever thought it would happen. And before too long, you're sitting in a nursing home. You're living in assisted living, and you have limited mobility. You can't drive. Maybe you can't see. 
you can hardly write anymore, and, and you hear stories of, of everything that's going on in the church or in the world, or maybe you're listening to this message because you can rarely make it here physically, and you're thinking to yourself, it takes all my energy to just get from bed to the breakfast table. How is my life a gift from God? I say that on the outside, but, but honestly, I'm, I say it when my family's listening, but on the inside, I'm so discouraged. I wonder if my life is even worth living. Why, why keep trying? I'm probably just a burden to everyone. Things would be better, I wonder, if I just died. It wouldn't, friend. It wouldn't. Your, your, your life is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. That was true on the day you were born, and that's still true today, okay? It doesn't matter how much you're able to physically do or physically accomplish. The simple fact that your heart is beating right now and your lungs are moving right now is a glorious reflection of the life of God inside of you. There's worth in that life. I don't care how many people still know you're even alive or care that you're alive. God knows and God cares because God gave you that gift of life. And even if you're wasting away on a hospital bed, your, your life has incredible dignity because it was given to you by God. And it's his life. And, and by the way, I would be remiss if right now I didn't stop to thank those of you who work and serve in a medical profession. Because you are laying down your life on days when you are tired and wiped and haven't slept for 24 straight hours because you believe that every life is a gift. And I want you to know, brother or sister, that in, in fighting for that life and in not just seeing a patient on a bed, but the life of God in an image bearer of God and caring for them accordingly, you are bringing great glory to God. So thank you. Thank you. In Isaiah 43, 6, the Lord declares, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, listen, whom I created, I formed for my glory, whom I formed and made. What's the point? You will never find a good life apart from relationship with God. You'll never find it, friend. He created you for himself, okay? And experiencing that relationship starts with recognizing that your life is a gift from God. It's entrusted to you. It's not your own. The first gift God gave Adam that led him into the good life was the gift of God's life. Point number one. Point number two, he didn't just give him the gift of life. He gave him the gift of God's presence. The gift of God's presence. I, I love how God didn't just create the man and cut him loose. Look at verse eight. Grants Adam the gift of life, and then he creates a place, a place that's specifically designed 
to sustain Adam's life. Genesis 2, 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. How many of you love gardening? Some of you? Okay, this is my thing. Last Monday, I spent five hours online planning my next perennial garden for this summer. I'm that guy. it, It refreshes me like nothing else. And when I was reading this week and the Lord God planted a garden, I said, yep, I'm with you, God. Count me in. But he planted a garden, and yet we quickly recognize this is not an ordinary garden. Okay, some of you are going to plant your garden soon as it gets warm. You're going to plant an ordinary garden. I'm sorry, just to let you know. You may get a few meager tomatoes or something, but you're going to plant an ordinary garden. This is not an ordinary garden. This is a picture of paradise. Why do I say that? Three reasons. First, it's a beautiful place. Look at verse 9. Beautiful place. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. You ever seen that before? Thought about that? I mean, God could have formed Adam, created Adam, and then stuck him in a desert and said, dude, here's an entire case of MREs. (laughs) Call me when you run out. But he didn't do that, right? He didn't have to give beautiful trees to Adam. But he did. He planted a stunning garden for him. It didn't just contain one kind of tree. Hey, Adam, there's some shade over there. Yeah, and the same tree's over there. No. No, he planted, he gave Adam every kind of tree. Every kind of tree, the complete variety of trees that could thrive in that part of the world. So it's a beautiful place. Second, it's a nourishing place. It's a nourishing place, sustaining the life of all that's in it and and all that surrounds it. So notice back in verse 9 that these aren't just ornamental trees. These are fruit trees. These are, verse 9, trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. And you've got a single river that flows into the garden. It provides this constant supply of abundant water. And then you have four rivers leaving the garden. So think about that. It, in other words, it's not just a place that has life or sustains life. The garden is a place that multiplies life and sends life to all that's around it, to lands near and far. So you've got the first river flowing from the garden bringing life to the land of Havilah, where there is gold. And notice verse 12. I love this. The gold of that land is good. It's good gold. It's not just average gold. It's really good gold. It's good. Precious stones. Bdellium, that's an aromatic resin. Translation, this place is rich in natural resources. That's the picture. It's not just a place where where life is available to those who want to come by and check it out. It's a place that gives life to lands that are near and far. I wonder if that sounds like the church, at least what it's supposed to be. But it's not just a beautiful place and a nourishing place. It is, third, God's place. And here's where we get to the real point, the gift of God's presence, okay? God's presence fills the garden and sustains the garden. And that's ultimately what makes it paradise and what makes it beautiful and nourishing. So how do we know this? 
Look at verse nine. God plants a tree of what? A tree of life in the midst of the garden. Okay, much like Revelation, this section of Genesis is highly symbolic. Okay, so that, that tree of life is a symbol representing continual access to the life of God himself. That's the picture. And, and eating from that tree, is, as Derek Kidner says, was a physical means of a spiritual transaction. So eating from the tree of life was a physical means of abiding in the life of God himself. And verse 8, if you look there, reminds us that God planted this garden in the east. That is so significant. So significant. Why? Because the east is the land of the sunrise, the land of light. And, and years later, the Lord commanded Moses to build a tabernacle or a tent where Yahweh would dwell with his people. And guess which way the gate faced? East. Exactly. East is the direction that the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, comes from in Isaiah 41. And, and east is the direction from which the glory of the Lord comes in Ezekiel 43 to fill the temple. So it's in the east. Translation, it's God's place. And the fact, I hope you notice this, that the garden contains headwaters of four rivers tells us what about the garden? It's not in a valley. Where are headwaters found? It's, it's, it's high up. It's, it's on a mountain, right? Why is that significant? Because throughout the Bible, mountains are where God meets with his people and reveals his presence. So you think about God talking to Noah on mountains of Ararat or, or Mount Sinai where God speaks to Moses or the, or the temple mount in Jerusalem or, or the symbolic mountain of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 2 where the prophet sees all the nations of the world coming to worship Yahweh. It's God's place. And, and this symbolism in these verses, I could just go on and on, is, is picked up and echoed across the entire Bible and nowhere more clearly than in the end of the story in Revelation 21 and 22, when we get to heaven. What's the point? It's not just a garden. It's a mountain sanctuary. It's the temple of God. It's the dwelling place of God, the place where his, his presence is fully known and enjoyed. And Genesis 3.8, if you look there, confirms this so clearly where we read that Adam heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. As if that's just a perfectly normal experience. You know, what do I walk with in my garden? Moles and voles that I'd like to behead. <laughs> what does Adam walk with in this garden? God himself. So it's a, it's a beautiful place. It's a nourishing place. More than anything else, though, it's God's place. God's dwelling. And man's in it. That's why he created the garden in the first place. And notice, notice, friend, Adam didn't have to find his way into the garden or earn his way into the garden. How did he get there? The Lord, verse 15, look there. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden. 
so, so digression. So often, we, we think of God as a cold and distant sovereign. I think we do. You know, we're, maybe we're humbled that he would die on the cross for our sins. We're, we're, we're grateful that he made a way for sinners to be righteous. But, but we tend to think of our sin as the unfortunate problem that drives the whole train. I messed this up, and therefore God had to go through all these lengths to fix my mess, to deal with my mess. And we reduce the gospel to God's way of dealing with our mess. Well, that's partly true, but that's not the whole story, friend. It's not the whole story, okay? What does the paradise God created in Genesis 2 tell us? What tells us more than anything else that God is the one who desired from the very beginning to dwell with his people and to make a way for them to dwell with him forever. That was God's idea. That, that wasn't a project sin started. That was a project God started. From God's heart. God, God isn't just interested, friend, in forgiving your sins and making you righteous. The gospel is about what God has done through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to do those things so that you could enjoy a relationship with him. That's the goal. That's the end game. The, the goal is not, congratulations, sir, you've been forgiven and made righteous. Best of luck to you. <laughs> no. You're forgiven, you're righteous, and now? Come home. Enjoy life as it was meant to be, the good life, an intimate relationship with the creator. Re relationship is the goal, church. That's the end game, dwelling in the presence of God. And we're waiting, if you're a Christian, you're waiting for the day, I hope, when the Lord returns and, and he makes all things new and we're living in another Eden, another paradise, new heavens and new earth. But, but hear this, we are not waiting to enjoy the gift of God's presence. All right? We're not. What do I mean by that, okay? Well, the God who breathed physical life into Adam is in the business today of doing what? Breathing spiritual life into the hearts of his people and taking up residence inside of us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and it's through the Holy Spirit that God's given to every Christian that we enjoy the sustaining power of his presence, even in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of suffering. You know, I, I think we tend to conceive of God sometimes as a cosmic power who exists to meet my needs and deliver to me the good life that I deserve. So here's the analogy. We treat God like the Amazon delivery man. <laughs> and we really could care less about the driver, just give me the package I ordered. No debt, good sex, obedient kids, a healthy body, so I can start enjoying the good life. Would you hurry up already? I tithed last month. We think like that, but, but, but friend, 
Not only is that arrogant, that's a grievous mistake because it's not the presence of God's gifts that ultimately make life good. What is it? The presence of God himself. That's what makes life good. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So, does God delight to give you good gifts? Yes, but take care. Be very careful that you never love the gift more than the giver. And you always let the gift take you back up to the giver. And the more the gifts abound, the more your affection and delight and love and gratitude for who the giver is abounds. That's how we're meant to live, friends. He's the treasure. Okay, knowing Jesus is the prize. And no matter what happens to you in this life, if you're in Christ, then you can know this. King Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. You know what that means? The one thing you actually do need in this life to experience the good life can never be taken away from you. That's incredible. You might sit wherever you are in this room thinking, I've been trying for 50 years to achieve a good life for me and my family. You know what God is saying to you right now? Son, daughter, you already have a good life. You've received a good life. You, why? Because I have given you the gift of my presence. Point one, I've given you the gift of life. Point two, I've given you the gift of my presence. What's the third gift? We'll wrap up with this. It's the gift of God's word. They just keep getting better. The gift of life, the gift of his presence, the gift of his words. Let's look at verse 15. Notice God, he doesn't just stick Adam in the garden and hand him a pina colada. He gives him a mission, right? So verse 15 tells us God put Adam, took Adam, put him in the garden. He's not doing anything. He's just along for the ride. To what? Work it and keep it. So let's think about this. Working the garden points to Adam's responsibility to serve his creator by developing and cultivating the land in a way that enhances human flourishing. That's working, okay? And by the way, that's the same word used later in the Old Testament to just describe the service that the priests perform in the tabernacle. What's the connection? Adam, you're going to worship me through your work. There's a spiritual dynamic of bringing praise to me through the way you're tilling that soil. Amazing. His gardening is an act of worship. And and keeping the garden, that was working, keeping the garden, well, this points to Adam's responsibility to protect Eden from anything that would corrupt or destroy God's good design. So, So this is a watchful word, a protective word a defensive word, and this is precisely what Adam fails to do when we get to chapter 3, as we'll see in a few weeks. But, but here in chapter 2, well before sin has entered the world, look at verse 15 again. God created work. Hear that, friend. The fact that work is present long before sin is present says what? Work is fundamentally a good thing. It's a God thing. 
That should remind you that the point of your life is not to work as little as possible for as much money as possible so you can retire as early as possible. The point of your life is to do the good works that God prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. It's a good thing. The work God requires is a good thing and the law God gives is a good thing. Look at verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely What's going on here? Well, like work, I think that we tend to think of God's law as something that's only necessary because sin is around and the world's kind of a messed up place, so we need something to keep it all in line from going to pot. We think that way. But nothing could be further from the truth. Why? Because the law finds its origin not in the presence of sin, but in the character of God. Notice that. Long before sinners enter the world, what's present in the world? The holy law of God. Why is that? Why is that? Because it's an expression of his righteous rule in the world that he created. That's what it is. This is not an invitation. Verse 16 is not an invitation for Adam to have the best of luck in earning the favor or blessing of God. Notice that. He's already received the gift of life. He already enjoys the blessing of God's presence. The invitation before Adam here, the instruction given to Adam, is for him to remain in submission to the rule of his creator if he wants to continue enjoying the good life that God has freely given him. So think about this. If you look at verse 16, 17, I hope you notice this is not just a statement about what Adam should not do. This is a statement about what Adam should do. Okay? So what should Adam do? He should revel in the abundant and lavish provision God has made for him. He he should eat from every tree in the garden. But there's one tree he may not eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now this, this knowledge of good and evil, this seems to represent moral experience or autonomy. What do I mean by that? It's the power to choose for ourselves what is right and wrong. Okay? Instead of trusting our creator to tell us what is right and wrong. It's a choice Are you going to choose for yourself? Mm, I like that. That's right. I don't like that. That's wrong. I'm going to make the choice. I'm going to be God. Or are you going to submit to the revealed will and instruction of your creator and let him say what is right and what is wrong? That's the choice. And Francis Schaeffer summarizes what God is, is telling Adam this way. Listen to this. Adam, believe me. And stay in your place as a creature. Not as one who is autonomous. Believe me. And love me. As a creature to his creator. And all will be well. Adam, this is the place for which I have made you. 
What's that tell us? It reminds us, friend, that the law of God is what marks out the path of life. It's like the blue lights on a runway that tells the airplane where to land. I mean, woe to the airplane pilot that says, you know what? Why do they have to keep telling me where to land my plane? I'm going to land my plane wherever I want to land my plane. That's not going to work because <laughs> you got to follow the blue lights. They tell you where the path of safety and blessing is found. So too with the law of God. It marks off the path of life. That's its ultimate function. And it reminds us that there are only two options. Either you will allow God's instruction and warning to send you running down the path of life, or you will go rogue and ignore his instruction and go running down the path of death. There is no middle ground, friend. God has not created a world where you can sample some of his moral principles and integrate them with your own and expect to find life. Either you go all in with him or you die. That's the choice. And I challenge some of you, especially some of you young people in this room, to remember that the next time you are really struggling with a particular command God has given us in his word. Okay, by the way, that doesn't just go away when you get old. But when you're young, I think it can be really hard Hear this, the law of God is not a raw exercise of power. It's not. It's not God trying to ruin the party. It's God showing you the path of life. Why is he doing that? Because he loves you. He loves you. He loved Adam enough to warn him. And friend, God has given you his word today to read and obey because he loves you enough to warn you too. That's the point. The work God gave Adam was good. The word God gave Adam was good. And it all marked out the path of life. The good life, friend. Life as it was meant to be. You're only going to find that in covenant relationship with God. And that requires three things. Very simple. God's people living in God's place under God's rule. That's the good life. Go make a t-shirt. <laughs> life is good. God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what Eden was. That's paradise. And friend, God is holding the same life out to you today through the gospel. That's what he's doing. Coming to faith in Christ is all about trusting the creator to give you life, abundant life, instead of trying to create it for yourself. So I implore you, friend, come to Christ. Come to Christ. Hear, hear God speaking to you in 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You need to repent of running everywhere into all other things other than Jesus for life. And you need to keep running to Jesus and keep on clinging to Jesus every day of your life that you might continue to know his abundant life. Until when? Until we're done with Jesus? No. Until the day he comes back and we get to go home and enjoy his presence forever. One day, friend, if you're in Christ, you're going to get to experience in heaven what we've glimpsed today in Eden. <laughs>
Listen to these words. Close your eyes with me. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Lord Jesus. Yahweh. We thank you for this stunning privilege of the gift of your life, the gift of your presence, and the gift of your word. And I pray, Father, that though in this fallen world we, we know those three gifts only in part, that you would open our eyes again today to see that we still know them truly. We might not experience them exhaustively, but we know them truly. You've given us life. You've given us your presence. You've given us your word that we might work and serve you and stay on the path of life. I thank you for your love for us, that dwelling with you wasn't our idea. It was your idea. And I pray as we sing these songs that thank you for the gift of life and express our longing to use your life, your breath, to bring glory to your name that you would receive much honor from this people. Amen.